Good evening. Right-wing settlers decide to postpone their rally in Jerusalem as Hamas fires rockets into the city after a weekend of fighting between Palestinians and Israeli police. The trial of a lawyer accused of being too good for his indigenous clients fighting an oil giant in Ecuador. Why are Americans shunning a return to work? and plans for a megacity on Governor's Island. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Monday, May 10th, 2021. And in breaking news, COVID-19 vaccines finally are headed for more kids as United States regulators on Monday expanded use of Pfizer's shot to those as young as 12, sparking a race to protect middle and high school students before they head back to class in the fall. Vaccinating children of all ages will be critical to a return to normalcy, according to the government. Most COVID-19 vaccines rolling out worldwide have been authorized for adults under emergency use authorizations, meaning Meanwhile, civil rights attorney Stephen Donziger, who successfully fought Chevron, the oil giant, for dumping 16 billion gallons of toxic waste into the Amazon rainforest and won $9.5 billion in settlement damages for indigenous and rural farmers of Ecuador, was in federal court in New York today facing criminal contempt of court charges. If found guilty, he likely faces six months in jail. Rebecca Miles is there and files this report. Dozens of supporters for the civil rights attorney Stephen Donziger, including Roger Waters of Pink Floyd, the actress Susan Sarandon, and former Democratic presidential candidate Marion Williamson, were outside the Southern District Court in New York this morning. Donziger is facing six counts of criminal contempt of court for his decision not to comply with a prior judge's order to turn over all his electronic devices and access to his accounts to a forensic expert for ultimate view by all giant Chevron, a process many think would violate attorney-client privilege and pose gate risk to his clients' lives. On his legal team is civil rights attorney Ron Kuby. It's a, it's a tough room here, especially after Williamson's talk. Uh, I have to be up there very, very soon. Um, I, I just want to say a couple things. We are not here to demand justice for Stephen Donziger. This is not the place we go for justice. This is the place that we're going to in order to bear witness to an injustice. This is the, the, the America's first corporate-sponsored private prosecution Pretty much since the days, since the good old days of colonial America. It happens in other countries. Happens all the time. This is the first time that it's happened here. Make no mistake about it. When we go upstairs and we sit there in the courtroom, we are not watching a trial, as that term is, is normally understood. We are watching a production. This trial is brought to you by Chevron Corporation. We burn the world and Stephen Donziger too. In the end, I, I am convinced, and I guess as a defense lawyer, it's probably bad form for me to say, in the end, I have little doubt but that this corporate-sponsored prosecution will be successful. 
and that they can add the term criminal. They can add that adjective to all the other adjectives they use against Stephen Donziger. He's a criminal. He's a fraud. He's a racketeer. All of those things they get paid to say over and over again. But as, as my great mentor, the wonderful and much lamented William Kunstler, once yeah. said, history, too, will have its say. Yes. And when that history is written, when that history is understood, whether it's next year or a decade or a generation from now, history will show who the real criminals That's were here. Right. And they're the yeah. Chevron Corporation. And they will be condemned by the verdict of history. The judicial proceedings have been marred by a number of flaws, including accusations of a lack of impartiality of the court, interference to attorney-client privilege, and deprivation of liberty. Chevron has been fighting back since Donziger and the Amazon Defense Front won their class action lawsuit on behalf of 48 plaintiffs with a $9.5 billion settlement in 2011, the largest class action ruling ever. Chevron pushed back, accusing Donziger and his team of bribing judges and fraud and racketeering. Donziger and his team, as a consequence, have not been able to claim the settlement. Donziger has been under house arrest for over 600 days. During opening arguments in a bench trial before federal judge Loretta Preska, defense lawyer Martin Garbus said repeatedly Donziger would be convicted of criminal contempt of court. Garbus told the judge his client couldn't comply with judicial orders to turn over his electronic devices as part of a civil fraud trial which found Donziger guilty of committing fraud for $8.6 billion, the oil pollution judgment of Chevron. Garbus said the current trial was a sham and corrupted by Chevron's power. Garbus's open argument was repeatedly interrupted by Judge Preska and Special Prosecutor Rita Glavin, with Preska telling Garbus, this is not a press conference, we're here to talk about evidence in the case. Mask wearing is strictly enforced, and the public have to answer health questions as they arrive, and there are at least two overflow rooms with a live feed on a screen as attendees are spaced apart on benches. A number of people wore free Donziger face masks to court. Special Prosecutor Rita Glavin argued in her opening statement Donziger stood to take home $560 million from the judgment if it had been collected on. The trial is scheduled to last all week and is open to the public. Pink Floyd's Roger Waters described Chevron as a behemoth. Either we win this battle against the behemoth that is the status quo and our children, with some of our children are here today, live through a future that we might be able to map out for them in the future or Chevron wins and we all die it's done it's all over if Chevron wins this fight well we're not going to find out who the winner or loser is today but we will find out who is the winner and the loser and the winner in this battle is you and 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 all the other people in the world who want to see a future for our children and our grandchildren. Okay, that's all I have to say. Um. Rebecca Miles, WBAI, New York. 
And as reported in the story, Donziger's defense is that a guilty verdict is probably a foregone conclusion. In other words, the fix is in. Among the many indigenous people from Ecuador and other locales who came to support Donziger was Sarah Lee Whitson, a friend and Harvard classmate who is the executive director of DAWN, Democracy for the Arab World Now. Previously, she served as executive director of Human Rights Watch Middle East. DAWN was founded by Saudi Arabian and American journalist Jamal Khashoggi, who was murdered by Saudi agents inside the Saudi Arabian consulate in Istanbul in October 2018. His body was apparently dismembered by a specialist surgeon so it could be secretly removed. Khashoggi was attempting to get a legal document to finalize his marriage. Outside the consulate, his fiancée waited. But after hours passed and he failed to exit the building, she called her friend, Sarah Whitson, who described her work and what occurred in Istanbul. I'm the executive director of Democracy for the Arab World Now, which is the organization founded by Jamal Khashoggi just a few months before he was murdered. What's the purpose of that group? Our purpose is twofold. One is to promote democracy and human rights in the Middle East and North Africa, and the other is to challenge American policy that helps the worst abusive governments in the region. How did you find out he had died? I was on the phone with his fiance when he was detained in the consulate, so I was there from the get-go. What was that like? It was very difficult. What did you think when you were on the phone? I didn't think they'd kill him. I thought they were going to try to force him to go back home, which I knew they'd been trying to do. Uh, I didn't expect they'd kill him. She was the person she called when she was outside waiting for him. Yeah. You have a close connection to the family still, I imagine? To her, but not his family. His family are all in Saudi Arabia and have been silenced. What's this about? It's about silencing a critic of Saudi Arabia. It's about silencing someone who could challenge U.S. support for the tyrannical regime in the country. What does the U.S. administrations back then and now have to do with that? There is a pending lawsuit to discover all of the information that U.S. government officials knew and had before Jamal was ordered about the threats to his life. Certainly, we know that the U.S. government knew that MBS orchestrated the murder of Jamal Khashoggi and Certainly, the Trump administration fought to keep that secret. We now have three pending lawsuits against the Biden administration to force them to disclose what they knew about the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. And that's Sarah Lee Whitson. She's the executive director of Dawn. The Trump administration helped the Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, a friend of Trump's son-in-law Jared Kushner, cover up the killing. Since Joe Biden took office, the Saudis have admitted their agents were involved in the killing, but no one has been held accountable. Another supporter was Pink Floyd frontman Roger Waters, a longtime advocate for human rights. He's famously said he'll never perform in Israel as long as the Palestinian people are denied their human rights. Other progressive musicians have tried to duck controversial issues, but not Waters, who has his own opinion of artists who don't speak out. What do you say to musicians to say, listen, I'm just a musician. Come on, you know, I can't take a stand on every issue. What do I say to them? <laughs> What's wrong with that? What, you know, they were radicals when they were young. Well, no, yeah, you can and take no position and die. You know, and you, you can live the living death of not following your heart and doing the righteous thing. That's what I would say. Pink Floyd frontman and human rights activist Roger Waters today, the opening day of the federal trial of environmental attorney Steve Donziger.
Meanwhile, Hamas, the political party that was elected to govern Gaza, fired dozens of rockets into Israel on Monday, including a barrage that set off air raid sirens as far away as Jerusalem after hundreds of Palestinians were hurt in clashes with Israeli police at a flashpoint religious site in the contested holy city. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu accused Hamas of crossing a red line with the rocket attack on Jerusalem. The Gaza Health Ministry said nine Palestinians, including three children, were killed in a series of strikes in northern Gaza, although it didn't explicitly blame Israel for the deaths. And Israel celebrated Jerusalem Day earlier on Monday, marking its capture of eastern sections of the Holy City in the 1967 Arab-Israeli War. Police had changed the route of a traditional Jerusalem Day march in which thousands of Israeli flag-waving Jewish youth of the right-wing persuasion walk through the old city. The focus of Palestinian anger is Sheikh Jarrah, a tiny neighborhood of East Jerusalem where protesters are trying to prevent Israel from evicting eight Palestinian families and letting Jews move in. The area has become an emblem of what Palestinians see as an Israeli campaign to force them out of East Jerusalem. Fighting ranged through the night as police fired flashbang grenades at protesting Palestinians. <laughs> The violence spread to the Temple Mount, where the third holiest shrine in Islam shares space with the most sacred spot for Jews, not far from the purported place where Jesus was entombed. Israeli police were filmed firing rubber bullets and tear gas inside the beautiful Al-Aqsa Mosque, decorated with words from the Quran in a rainbow of colors. Today, U.S. State Department spokesperson Ned Price says the Biden administration is engaged with both sides. We are concerned about the potential eviction of these families, many of whom have lived in Shechra for generations. As I understand it, this is now an issue before the Israeli Supreme Court. That decision was supposed to come out today. It has now been delayed by some time. I don't want to get ahead of where the Supreme Court might come out, but our position has been clear. We're concerned, very concerned, about the potential for those evictions, and that's why we spoke out. Our message to both Israeli and Palestinian officials has been one of de-escalation, urging de-escalation, knowing that the conditions on the ground are especially volatile. And now that we're in the month of Ramadan. And that's Ned Price. He's a State Department spokesperson. In better times, I visited Al-Aqsa and the Dome of the Rock. In those days, it was easy to achieve entrance, and it was a beautiful location. And hopefully one day it'll be reopened to the public. But Bethlehem University professor Mazin Kumsea, who joins WBAI from the West Bank town, famed as the birthplace of Jesus, says Israel took its cue from the U.S., and Donald Trump unilaterally recognized Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Israel wants to make Jerusalem a Jewish city. The Palestinians say Jerusalem has always had Christians, Muslims, Jews, a multi-ethnic, multicultural, multi-religious city, and that, that it shouldn't be transformed. So that's part of the reason why we have this mayhem, is basically the attempt to change the status of a holy city that's considered holy by three different religions to make it peculiar or unique to one religion or make it controlled by the Zionist state. What's the significance of the Al-Aqsa Mosque? Such a beautiful building, Al-Aqsa Mosque, and, and people just were so proud of it. And you're saying it's of, it's of great importance to, to Muslim people. It's the first direction of prayer for the Muslims before Mecca before they changed it to Mecca, and then it's the third holiest site in Islam after Mecca and Medina. 
uh, holy to 1.5 billion Muslims and 2.5 billion Christians. That's how it should be. The question is, do you want to maintain Jerusalem as polycultural, multicultural, multireligious, or do you want it to become a Jewish city? And the Zionists want to make it a Jewish city come hell or high water. That's the problem. What do people feel in that community when they see riot police shooting tear gas inside such a holy building? Uh, yeah, and also doing it in the holy uh, period, and this is the month of Ramadan, so of course it's inflaming tensions all around. The problem is, you know, at the last few days of Ramadan, is, uh, you know, for people of Gaza or anywhere else, uh, this is very important as it remains peaceful holiday and not be desecrated by such actions. Which started, we have to always remember it, with that march uh, by settlers, with the blessing of the Israeli government, settlers, including one minister, marching in Jerusalem saying death to the Arabs. This has to be very inflammatory and it is wrong and it should be condemned by everybody. But the world is silent, so the people here took action. And Gaza, being uh, Palestinians also, said we have to do something. And they gave Israel until 6 o'clock tonight to release all the prisoners that they have captured, over 100 people in the past few days of Ramadan, political prisoners, basically. And all these people did was protest peacefully in Jerusalem. It provided even more inflammation to the situation. Could we have a war break out over this? I hope not, but it's really very hard because we have a right government in Israel who is, uh, doesn't care about international reactions or international law. We have to remember Jerusalem is occupied and must be recognized that it falls under the Geneva Convention. Israel has no right to settle in places like Sheikh Jarrah. And as Bethlehem University professor Mazin Kumseya, who joins WBAI from the West Bank town, famed as the birthplace of Jesus. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. And President Joe Biden is under fire after last week's disappointing job numbers. It was expected the United States economy, recovering from the COVID pandemic, could add a million jobs. Instead, it was an anemic 250,000 jobs added to the struggling economy, leading to attacks from Republicans that generous unemployment benefits are convincing American workers to stay at home. Biden, whose tactic has been to use the U.S. economy to spend the country's way out of the pandemic, says the GOP has got it wrong. It's easy to say the, the line has been because of the generous unemployment benefits that it's a major factor in labor shortages. Americans want to work. Americans want to work. As my dad used to say, a job's about a lot more than a paycheck. It's about your dignity, your place in the community, being able to look your kid in the eye and say everything's going to be okay. I think the people who claim Americans won't work, even if they find a good and fair opportunity, underestimate the American people. So we'll insist that the law is followed with respect to benefits, but we're not going to turn our backs on our fellow Americans. And economist Dr. Jack Rasmus says the real problem is the U.S. jobs report is based on bad numbers. The numbers by the Labor Department are indicative of uh, 
how the government's having a hard time actually estimating <laughs> what the real jobs numbers are. The Labor Department's part of the problem because when they started the pandemic calculation of jobless in March 2020, uh, they came up with this uh, crazy um, interview, the unemployed determined by interview process. And they came up with this dumb question that asked people who are out of job, are you employed but absent from work? <laughs> people on furlough thought that, well, we're still employed. Of course, we're not working, not getting paid. So we're really not unemployed. The government, the Labor Department grossly underestimates the number out of work because of that dumb question, which they say is wrong, but they've never corrected. But that's only one example of the big problems they have calculating unemployment and employment accurately. As far as the question of uh, people coming back to work, it's not simply because they're getting unemployment benefits that pay more. That's just an example excuse for businesses to uh, and conservatives and Mitch McConnell and those guys uh, to prevent raising minimum wages and to attack the uh, fiscal uh, stimulus program. The reason I think people are not coming back to work is uh, several fold. The schools just haven't opened up. They say they opened up, but for two days a week or a couple hours a day, people who have young kids, especially uh, moms. They're staying home and schooling these kids. They can't go back to work until they get everybody back into school on a full school day. That's a big problem right now. And I think that's one of the reasons why people aren't going back. Another reason is businesses are offering people to come back with fewer hours of work part-time or a couple days a week. Businesses are trying to put their toe in the water to see how much demand there really is there. And they're bringing people back part-time, which means fewer weekly hours of work and fewer weekly earnings and pay. Well, no one wants to go back when it's fewer weekly earnings. And this is particularly true in the services and retail that were reduced during the COVID-2020 situation. Well, people aren't going to come back for lower wages. Uh, wages were reduced. Real wages and, and nominal wages were reduced during COVID, and they want to bring big people back at that same rate. No, that's not going to work either. Frankly, there are some workers who were in the service, low-paid services jobs, who have been really whacked by this situation and say, we don't want to go back to that kind of work again. We're going to try to get something better. So they're not rushing back to the restaurants and the game parks and uh, so forth. It's a situation that's much more complicated and multiple causes why people aren't going back to work. And I don't know it's all that great. Multiple reasons. This whole idea that, oh, the unemployment benefits are too generous is just nonsense. Maybe in Tupelo, Mississippi or something like that, marginally. But the rest of the country, that's not true. It's mostly child care costs. They can't afford child care or, they, or they're not going to go back for a few hours and weekly earnings or uh, they got to stay home and tutor their kids still because the schools haven't really opened or they're looking for something better, less unstable. It's all those reasons. Economist Dr. Jack Rasmus. And finally, New York's real estate industry is turning their sights onto a 172-acre island paradise in the heart of New York Harbor called Governor's Island, near the Statue of Liberty in Ellis Island and near downtown Manhattan in Brooklyn. Activists opposing the plan to develop the island with massive high-rises have organized a loose-knit group known as MAGIC, the Metro Area Governor's Island Coalition. WBAI's Mitch Cohen has the story. Dozens turned out Thursday, along with a number of candidates for public office, for a press conference in Battery Park overlooking the harbor. Ben Shepard, representing Voices of the Gowanus Canal in Brooklyn, calls it the place we go to dream. 
Governor's Island is a space for dreaming, a space for pirates to run into, kids in the park. It's a place to run into musicians. It's a place to take a nap in a public space. And it's a place to find a little sanity in an insane world. The city is proposing to allow billionaire developers to build condos and office buildings on the island, taking over public space under the Trojan horse of constructing a climate research center. Fannie Lee exposes that shell game. What are they studying, really? They put up this tower. They're just going to study their own drowning. They say, oh, it's only one building. Don't you care about climate change? It's like, well, you know what else is only one building? That 80-story tower by Manhattan Bridge, you know. That's one building. And you know what? They're getting ready to put up four more. So what do you think is going to happen here? Tiffany Winbush, Jenny Lowe, and Chris Marte are three of the candidates for New York City Council from the Lower East Side. Marte summed it up. Trees, not towers. We're standing as a community. It's great to see other candidates here for all levels of government to say we all oppose this plan. And if any of us are elected, we will stop it in its tracks. The City Council Land Use Committee will vote on the current rezoning proposal for the southern portion of Governor's Island on Tuesday, May 11th. The coalition, Magic, demands that the proposal be withdrawn. Mitchell Cohen, WBAI Radio, New York. And that's some of the news for Monday, May 10th, 2021. The news is produced by Linda Perry, Rebecca Miles, and Mitch Cohen. Our engineer is Reggie Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.